Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Men who have sex with men and are sexually active have not been allowed to donate blood in the U.S. for more than 35 years. But that may be about to change. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. The FDA has proposed the most sweeping revision to that ban ever. If enacted, it will mean that everyone who's donating blood will be asked questions about their sexual history to assess individual risk, not just gay and bisexual men. So how do people feel about it, and what's still missing? For more on this, we are checking in with Dr. Anu Hazra, medical director of the University of Chicago Medicine's Sexual Wellness Clinic. Jim Pickett, senior advisor with AVAC Global Advocacy for HIV Prevention. And Luke Romsberg, social service provider at Center on Halsted. Before we get into the revisions, I want to start with what your personal experiences with this ban have been. Luke, you first. Sure. I mean, I remember I came out at a fairly young age. I was about 13 years old. And I specifically remember in high school, uh, one of our, our... one of my fellow students did a senior project, and it was a blood donation, um, and we did a blood drive at the school. I remember being out of the closet, and it was me and, you know, maybe two of my other friends who were also out. Okay. Um, and I remember being forced to kind of sit on the sidelines while everyone else gave blood who was over the age of 18. So, Were you told why? Um, I mean, we, we didn't understand at the time, and then we found out whenever we were in the process of trying to give blood that they asked us questions. And I was like, I'm not going to lie about... Um, who I'm sleeping with or my sexual orientation. And um, yeah, we were told to, to stay on the sidelines and it didn't feel didn't feel great. That's for sure. I can imagine. Dr. Hazra, what about you? Yeah, I mean, my uh, entire life has been uh, actually uh, has been sort of affected by the ban itself. I've never been able to provide blood because of this sort of uh, ban that's been in place um, several times throughout, you know, uh, education and, and in med school where we would have blood drives. Um, like mentioned before, I would sort of sit on the sidelines uh, because of, you know, what felt to me like an archaic rule that didn't really seem based in science. And so uh, it's uh, good to see at least some movement in the, in the right direction. Jim, does this sound familiar? It does, but I have kind of a different perspective. Um, I think I'm a little older than these guys. So I I came out in 1984. Okay. Um, In high school, I gave blood. Um, That was never even a thought or a question about it. But then, um, you know, I came out at the height of the epidemic and people were dying in droves and it was um, very frightening. It was scary. And frankly, a blood ban was the least of my concern and most of our concerns. We mm-hmm. were concerned about surviving mm-hmm. and and making it to the next day. Um, it wasn't until the mid-90s when we improved HIV treatments and kind of the trajectory of HIV started to change drastically that it really dawned on me what a slap in the face this is to gay people, that this ban is non-scientific and um, stigmatizing But frankly, in the 80s and early 90s, my concern was not on the ban. So let's talk more about that timeline that you you mentioned there. The the lifetime ban was lifted in 2015, and monogamous gay and bisexual men who had abstained from sex for a year, they were finally able to donate blood at that point. Then in 2020, the FDA relaxed this further and said, okay, three months. How did the FDA explain these changing timeframes, Dr. Hazra? 
A lot had to do, like Jim mentioned, uh, the changing trajectory of HIV, as well as thinking about HIV prevalence in the community as a whole. Um, and part of that is also seen by what our you know, peers across the world have adopted in, the, in relaxing their blood bands, that the majority of the industrial world um, you know, has a, a more scientific approach to thinking about this. But I will say even the, uh, the one-year uh, and the three-month uh, three band wasn't really based in, in science. Um, I think you know, the, the argument that was made at the time was really based on, you know, the HIV tests and the window period for these HIV tests. But the HIV tests we have now have window periods far uh, shorter than one year and even far shorter than three months. So it was it felt like it was just a natural progression to making, you know, towards these individual at risk assessments. Mm-hmm. Um, but it didn't really feel like it was the correct choice at the time. And so we're clear, how much of a risk does sexual transmission of HIV pose to, say, transmission from needles? So uh, we know that HIV is most effectively transmitted from blood to blood contact. And so um, sharing of injection equipment, um, sharing of actual blood from one person to another, that's the most effective means of transmission. Uh, Sexual transmission does occur, obviously, uh, but is not to the same degree or magnitude as blood to blood. So I want to hear from all of you on this one. When you heard about the FDA's most recent revision, right, how did you feel? We'll start with you, Jim. So first off, I'd say I'm delighted. This is progress. This is moving in the right direction. This is the best it's been in decades. I do think we have a ways to go, that there are still things in there that are problematic to me. Um, I mean, we, I guess we could get into a little bit now. Um, the PrEP deferral, like not if you're on PrEP, not being able to provide uh, blood. Um, I think there's still a hyper-focus on gay and bisexual men. And PrEP being the, the pill that uh, people take to prevent from right. contracting Thank you. So, right, HIV a, from sex. Exactly. There's a daily pill, and now there's also an injection that you take every two months that can prevent HIV. Um, so there's just a real focus on, still a focus on gay and bisexual men. Um, women make up 20% of HIV infections, so they're kind of not really discussed there. There's a hyper-focus on anal intercourse rather than intercourse. And then the final thing I'll say, and I know other, our other panelists will have things to say about it too, but... The kind of focus on things like how many partners, monogamy, I think they're all a little bit squishy. So while I'm applauding the FDA for this move and the administration for moving this forward, I do think we still have a little work to do. To that end, Luke, what do you think about the fact that now everyone with this proposal, everyone who wants to donate blood would be asked about their sexual history, not just gay and bisexual men? Yeah. um, I mean, like Jim said, I do think it is a step in the direction overall. Um, The idea is where where I take a little bit of issue with is uh, the focus on monogamy. Um, I'm currently working on my dissertation, which is on polyamorous relationships. And um, I've been interviewing folks, specifically cisgender, gay or queer identified men um, who are in multiple partner relationships. And the fact is this population they are often very aware of their sexual health and um, keeping tabs on, you know, testing. Um, the communication is open with their partners. Uh, there's, there's really not a need, need to lie or, or be closeted about um, what you're doing sexually. So the idea that monogamous um, relationships are somehow safer or mm-hmm. higher valued when it comes to giving blood is just false uh, overall. So that's, that's kind of where... 
and the idea of not uh, medical non-disclosure is you know we often people lie to their doctors that's just a fact right and if someone is closeted uh, or on the DL or you know sleeping with with men on the side they're probably not going to be the and they have a wife you know they're probably not going to be the most open regarding their sexual history and and who their current partners are help us understand dr hasra what this revision does exactly yeah so i mean i think you know this revision is moving away from you know uh a broad ban to individualized risk assessments, right? So trying to assess someone's individual risk of HIV. A lot of the points brought up, uh, these contra- the con- contradictions within uh, this risk assessment, I think is, you know, um, has caused some controversy. Uh, but overall, I agree, this is, you know, a step, a great step in the, in the right direction. Uses of, of gender neutral language, there is no mention of gay or bisexual men at all in the standardized questions. It's all about individuals and talking about sexual practices. And, and we know that, you know, anal sex is sexual practice does confer the highest risk of HIV transmission just by nature of physiology of anal sex itself. Uh, but I agree. I think this focus on monogamy and the focus on, you know, not allowing folks on pre-exposure prophylaxis is a little counterintuitive. Um, mm-hmm. Someone taking a medication that will prevent HIV up to 99% of the time uh, is probably one of the most safest people to potentially donate blood if the concern is HIV transmission. Um, but the FDA does note in their draft recommendations that they'll be continuing to monitor this. And a lot of this, these questions might be answered by the advanced study that was just completed enrollment uh, late last fall. So yeah. I'm Hoping, you know, this continues to be a dynamic process and continues to shift in the right direction. You know, and and Jim, as we've said, this policy is going to shift to an individual um, risk assessment. Talk more about why that's something that advocates have been pushing for. And I also want to revisit, you know, something you brought up earlier. Everyone is now going to be asked whether they've had anal sex in the past three months, right? So, and that's regardless of their sexual orientation. So talk about the, the shift you think that signals. So okay, let's let's start with anal sex. Um, I think that's a good shift um, because for a long time, I think that you know lots of folks tended to believe the fallacy that um, anal sex was the purview of gay and bisexual men, and that straight people did not have anal sex. This acknowledges that anal sex is a common human practice the world over and in our country, and so asking about it of every human makes a lot of sense. Um, but what's interesting is that they don't ask about vaginal sex. There's no questions in there at all about vaginal sex. Why do you think that is? They're still leaning towards gay and bisexual men being more of an issue in terms of uh, concerns around the FDA blood supply than um, other people. I think it's stigmatizing. Yeah. Uh, and, and vaginal sex, we, we know, is a spreader of HIV globally, especially in in. Southern African countries. Absolutely. Vaginal sex can, uh, can transmit HIV when it's not protected. Let's be clear. There's, a, there's plenty of ways to have vaginal and anal sex that are 100% safe. So that's the other thing in terms of I'm glad that we're asking people, you know, individuals. We're not doing a blanket like this entire group just can't even come to the table. You can come to the table. We ask you about your individual behaviors and then assess. Um, but we're still missing some some folk we're still missing some important data in there mm-hmm. um we're missing uh the fact that uh there are women who are uh vulnerable to HIV and have HIV in this country it's about 20% that's not a small number um gay and bisexual men make up a bigger number but 20% is not a small number and as you mentioned Sasha around the world in many environments, sub-Saharan Africa, the number is, you know, it's over 50% are cisgender women 
with HIV. So um, there's just that kind of contradiction is a little bit, uh, it's not about science. It's still about um, identity (laughs) and stigmatizing a certain identity or stigmatizing certain behaviors over others. Luke, how much of a difference do you think this revision is going to make on the ground and in the work that you do and the services that you offer at the Center on Halsted? Um, regarding Center, I I will say it's just going to be a different education process, most likely for the folks who, who walk into Center. Um, I can't imagine that this revision is going to change our practices uh, t- too much. And um, I'm, while I'm not directly involved with the HIV department and the hub, um, like I said, it's it's going to be mainly about what we inform folks um, and, and how it's it's not going to change the way that we interact with them regarding their sexual health and uh, the, the practices that we, we promote there. So, Dr., Many people are concerned and frustrated that folks who are currently taking PrEP, that's the medication we talked about earlier, um, they're still excluded from donating blood. So first, talk more about what PrEP is so that we're all on the same page and, and what you think of the FDA's decision there. Of course. So so PrEP, um, like mentioned a little bit earlier, is a medication um, that comes as an oral tablet or now an injection, like Jim mentioned. Uh, it is an oral tablet if taken on a daily basis can prevent someone's or uh, reduce someone's risk of acquiring HIV by over 99%. And so while it's no, we don't have a vaccine for HIV, PrEP is essentially the next best thing that we're able to prevent HIV among populations uh, that may be vulnerable uh, to HIV uh, and, you know, continue to get our numbers to zero as an R campaign to end the HIV epidemic. And so, you know, when we think about uh, PrEP in the context of blood transfu- uh, blood, uh, blood donations, it's, it's a, again, a, a little perplexing um, that if someone is on PrEP, you know, their risk of HIV is essentially zero, as close to zero as anyone can get. Um, uh, and so, you know, to bar them from donating blood um, is, is, uh, is a little counterintuitive. Uh, but I, I, we understand and we know from experience that the FDA uh, is very conservative in how they change their practice guidelines. Like we talked about going from one year to three months, uh, took a global pandemic uh, to change their, you know, these, this blood transfusion policy in 2020. And so I, I didn't expect or I don't expect the FDA to have embraced PrEP um, or patients on PrEP as, mm-hmm. you know, uh, blood donors. But I, I do hope, and they, like I said, they mentioned in, the, in their drafted recommendations that this is a, an ongoing area of study that they hope to continue. Uh, to sort of make adjustments to. I want to have you make an important distinction for us here, Jim. Um, Currently, folks with undetectable HIV, they're prevented from donating blood, right? Uh, And so are their partners, no matter what their status is. So first, can you explain for our listeners what undetectable HIV is? And talk about whether you think that there's a conversation to be had about letting negative partners be able to donate blood. Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks for bringing it up. Um, So undetectability, if a person living with HIV is on successful antiretroviral treatment to the point that their virus is suppressed to the levels that we would call undetectable. Um, So they're very low. They actually can be quantified, but they're very low. Uh, And if you achieve that, you are unable to transmit HIV sexually. And so Anu mentioned PrEP being up to 99% effective. The CDC and other, you know, global experts uh, point out that undetectability or undetectable equals untransmittable is 100 percent. So it is quite powerful. There's almost nothing in science that we can say is 100 percent ever. But if you're undetectable, you cannot transmit HIV to your uh, HIV negative partners sexually. Uh, So I think, you know, um, looking at partners of people living with HIV 
Um, that is an important, another important missed space that's not really taking into account this really powerful science, science that we've known, by the way, since 2011, but it took a while for everyone to sort of get around it, including the CDC. Mm. Um, so it's been a bit of an advocacy push to get scientists to accept the science that they're putting out there and doctors to put a, uh, accept the science. Uh, so that is a really important uh, uh, yeah. actually prevent, pre- prevention intervention that we have at our fingertips globally. Anything to add there, doctor? No, um, Jim said it best, you know, the U equals U or undetectable equals transmittable is it has been a transformative um, sort of a concept in the realm of HIV treatment and prevention. And really something that I agree took some time for uh, federal and local health departments to really fully embrace. But now that we are embracing, it, we understand the power of it. And so, again, another, you know, a little contra- contradiction uh, within the recommendations that someone who is with an HIV positive partner is undetectable essentially has zero risk or has zero risk, definitively zero risk risk of a sexual transmission from that partner. And for barring them from, from donating blood doesn't make sense either. Luke, what else do you want to see from this revision? Um, I mean, it's, I think we've, we've covered this a bit, but like I, yes, this revision is great. And I do think it will make some positive changes overall. But the, it, as Jim said, the idea is it's still stigmatizing. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like it's going to allow more people to give blood. Yes, that's great. Um, but we still have such a long way to go regarding this journey, and the history uh, behind it is is volatile as well. So there's some healing, I think, that needs to happen um, for the queer community and uh, gay men. Um, but we're getting there, and this is definitely a step in the right direction. Jim, why don't you address the folks who are listening right now and they're still concerned about the fact that the FDA has relaxed these rules? So uh, for folks who are concerned, I would say follow the science. Um, The FDA and its draft recommendations online um, point to links to data and science and research that back up why these changes are happening. We can also look to um, other democracies uh, and other non-democracies around the world who have made these changes um, in terms of how they uh, manage their blood supply. And uh, take all that in. Uh, And then I would, if you're still concerned, I would question, what is your concern really about? Are you concerned about the science? Or are you dealing with some kind of stigma, internal or external, towards um, gay and bisexual people? Dr. Hazra, what do you have your eye on? Yeah, I think... um What concerns me probably the most is, you know, at a time where we're seeing just the sheer livelihood of queer people under threat across the country, um, I do worry um, what these recommendations or the reverberations of these recommendations in different parts of, of the United States um, and so that is something I have my eye on. I haven't heard too much uh, once these draft recommendations were released uh, this month, but um, I would not be surprised if some of the noisemakers in, in, in politics uh, began to use this as another lightning rod or a divisive sort of uh, talking point. Um, and that, like everything else, you know, for the past three years, using sort of health equity work and work around the health of the general population as a political um, football has been really disheartening to see. And I, I do worry that that's what's going to happen uh, with these recommendation changes. That is Dr. Anu Hazra and Luke Romsberg. Thank you both. Thank you. 
we've discussed the revision to the FDA's ban on gay men donating blood. But what was going on that led the government to make this kind of decision in the first place? And what did that time feel like? Jim Pickett, longtime HIV advocate, is still with us. We're also speaking with Jennifer Breyer, professor of women and gender studies at UIC, specializing in the history of HIV AIDS. Okay, Professor, the FDA implemented this ban in 1985, and it applied retroactively to 1977. Remind us, what was going on in those years? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think many people think that AIDS began in 1981 when we saw the first uh, reports of it in the newspaper, whether it was the New York Times or the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Reports. But we know that... um, the, the, the virus called HIV has been circulating in human beings for much longer than that. And it's pretty clear that by the um, 1970s, uh, it was endemic in many communities um, around the world and certainly in the United States. And so 1977 is sort of the, the year that was determined to be the the sort of closest consensus point that people could point to to say that um, this thing that wasn't yet called HIV mm-hmm. um, or had just been named HIV in 1985 um, existed in the in the blood supply um, in the in the 1970s in the late 1970s. I see. I, I'm curious. When I first heard that, I was wondering how do you apply a blood donation ban retroactively? Well, it's not a blood donation ban retroactively. The the language in 1986 was that it mandated, it had recommended before that um, gay, that many groups that were called high-risk groups not donate blood. Um, and okay. that list is, of course, an interesting list, which we could talk about. But in 1986, they mandate a ban on all gay men who have had sex with another man since 1977 from donating blood. They also ban at that time um, Haitian immigrants and those from sub-Saharan Africa who emigrated to the United States before 1977. Mm-hmm. So why was this the route that the FDA took at the time, Professor? Why would it make the leap that a ban was a good idea? Well, that's a very good question because, of course, the ban coincides with the um, creation and um, distribution of a test for um, HIV, which is then uh, clear is the virus that causes AIDS. Um, so it is a curious thing that that at the moment when there's a test to determine if the blood if blood has HIV in it, we create a ban on a set of people and not the presence of the virus. Mm. So I would say that part of that as a historian of AIDS comes out of the fact that in the early 1980s, we associated AIDS with certain groups of people and not yet with certain behaviors. And um, those groups are um, historians call them sometimes the four, I sometimes say five H's. Um, homosexual men, um, which we now call gay men, and sometimes we refer to as men who have sex with men, bisexual men, Haitians, heroin drug users, mm-hmm. and the the and then hemophiliacs, which is part of the origin of this um, focus on blood, is about 
what hemophiliacs need in terms of living their lives. And we could talk about that as well. And then the last H is sometimes referred to as hookers. Yeah, let's, let's talk about it. Sex workers. Yeah, let's talk about it. Okay. So um, the, the first categories of people who were understood as directly affected by AIDS, this is before, um, before HIV is sort of discovered and it's clear that there is a viral cause of AIDS, um, is these groups. So um, gay men, uh, Haitians, heroin users, hemophiliacs, and sex workers. And... There's a, a range of, of epidemiological reasons why that's true, and maybe Jim wants to talk more about that. But those groups of people, we understand from the way uh, the virus has moved through um, time and space, um, there are some links to uh, uh, Central Africa mm-hmm. and also um, Haiti, but it's also very clear that HIV was circulating in um, the United States in the 1970s. Some of the first reports of the disease that will become AIDS are not in gay men, but in fact in in IV drug users. I see. And so there, so there's that to sort of reckon with. And then the reality is that hemophiliacs who require plasma and different blood products to live their lives um, are the people who most use the blood, the blood industry, which goes through some major transformations in the 1970s um, to produce factor eight, to produce the blood products that hemophiliacs need. And that puts them at a particular risk because of, and so the blood part is a, is a complicated, the blood industry part is the sort of most complicated part and underexplored part of this story. So I think the blood ban, which you talked about really beautifully in the last segment, has pieces of the puzzle here, but there's also a part about what it means to to be in a world where blood is a commodity. Mm. And that's partially um, produced by the blood industry, which has its own reasons for blood bans and other things. Jim, the professor used the word complicated. Is that what 1985 was like for you? <laughs> it was very complicated. And, I, and I, uh, I'll say I can speak to that personally, but I just want to add one piece to the to the five H's. Um, four of those H's were considered guilty as charged up front and yeah. were discriminated against. Hemophiliacs were always sort of the innocents. And so that also plays out in how we treat these different groups and how it was easy okay. to sort of push already marginalized groups into a box and say, you're all really problematic, you're all guilty, um, you're all dangerous, uh, and you're bad for society. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of where I was in the in the early, late, mid-80s, late-80s, I mean, I came out in 84. Uh, I stayed HIV negative until 95. I tested positive in 95, sort of the so-called second wave. Okay. Um, but, you know, as I kind of mentioned in the first segment, we really weren't thinking about blood bans as our top priority. I mean, this was survival. Um, The federal government was ignoring us other than to put us in a box and demonize us. They were actually making jokes about us um, dying. Uh, And we were dying in droves. And so it was all about survival. And it was about gay men and our allies, lesbians and straight allies, setting up organizations and services so we could 
not even live so we could die with dignity because we weren't living with H. You know, if you got HIV, your your clock started ticking and you were going to be right. You were going to be dead. So that was really the milieu that we were living in. And that I can't tell you that there were no people who were worried about the blood ban and pushing the FDA back then. But I certainly it was not on my radar until much later. Interesting. Professor, can you talk about some solidarity efforts that were happening in this time period as well? That was exactly what I was going to say. Mm-hmm. Um, there were these amazing, um, amazing uh, blood drives by lesbians. They called themselves blood sisters. Mm-hmm. And um, they were really throughout the sort of uh, like 1983, 1984 into the early 90s. The longest lasting one was in San Diego for almost 10 years. And it was at a moment where um, lesbians, many of them were in different kinds of religious congregations that had LGBT, or at the time it was really just LNG mm-hmm. um, constituencies. Uh, and they made a decision that they were going to donate blood to stand by their gay brothers who were not allowed to donate blood. And it was important in part because in the early 1980s, I think many um, lesbians uh, were were really thinking about the ways that they could act in solidarity, the way that they could support um, pe- their 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 brothers, their kin who were dying around them, and this was something that they could do, and it was a an important act of solidarity, an important act of affinity. Um, in ways that were also complemented by the work that many women, straight and lesbian Mm -hmm. and queer and bi, did to support people, as well as the reality that, of course, there are women living with HIV who are also still banned from giving blood, and that is people who have ever engaged in exchange sex, people who have ever used intravenous drugs. So to this point about who else is still banned, there's that too. Yeah. Great point. Uh, Jim, we've got to talk briefly about uh, the part that you took in, in organizing for, for medicines and treatment. Tell us about that. So a lot of my work has really focused on uh, organizing around um, uh, ways to prevent HIV uh, beyond condoms, uh, recognizing that condoms were never going to be what got us over the finish line, clearly. Mm-hmm. But in the in the late 80s and 90s, I certainly was part of, um, I didn't lead the efforts, but I was certainly part of efforts to move FDA processes faster, demand more uh, transparency and accountability from the NIH um, to speed up research processes to get drugs into bodies and to help, uh, uh, you know, even get experimental things to folks who were desperate. Um, and that led to an amazing period of time in the mid-90s, 96, 97, where a whole new class of drugs came out that literally, we talk about the Lazarus effect. There were people who were, you know, like three feet in the grave. They were ready to go. And these drugs came along and brought people back. Mm. Um, AIDS is no longer a death sentence. It does not have to be. Because of these developments. Right. I mean, I still think we have incredible disparities, incredible sociocultural barriers and systemic 
racism and white supremacy that that keep those amazing advancements from everybody you know, in equitable ways. Um, but certainly we have the tools. We have the tools right now to end the epidemic. We have the tools to treat everybody. Um, but how those tools are distributed and yeah. made available are incredibly inequitable in this country and in many places around the world. Before we wrap, Professor, what are you keeping an eye on next? Well, I am. I am. I was listening to the end of the conversation in the first segment about prep um, and what that means. I think we have to really follow the science, as as one of your guests in the earlier segment said, and um, you know, not be focused on. Uh, an outright ban of people who have ever injected drugs, which is just silly. If they are clean and they test negative consistently, there's no reason why they can't give blood. But I think the the issue is there's on the one hand, there's the need to make sure that um, we have a sort of common good in saying give blood. And if people are fundamentally excluded from that, they can't be part of that common good work it doesn't make it so common. So that's one piece. But I think the other piece is really what Jim is talking about, which is that if we are going to get, if we are actually going to end AIDS in our lifetime, Mm -hmm. we have to be thinking about these much more comprehensive approaches. We have to be thinking about um, accessibility of medicine. We have to be thinking about housing, which is part of what makes people healthy. We have to be thinking about other kinds of social support that um, give people the, the, the sort of path um, or allow them to be on a path yeah. that where they're not making decisions between a rock and a hard place at every turn. Mm-hmm. Right on. We'll leave it there. Jennifer Breyer is a professor of women and gender studies at UIC, specializing in the history of HIV AIDS. And Jim Pickett, senior advisor with AVAC Global Advocacy for HIV Prevention. Thank you both. This episode of Reset was produced by Linnea Dominic, and it was edited by Ethan Schwab. Stay in the know when it comes to news, politics and culture by subscribing to our podcast. And when you do, leave us a rating and tell a friend. That'll do it for Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We'll talk to you this afternoon. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.